Good afternoon and welcome to Power for the People here on Solar Power WERU-FM. 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and everywhere in our solar system at WERU.org. I'm your host, Steve Collin. As regular listeners know, the goal for, of Power for the People is to help Mainers understand the what seems to be, frankly, the increasingly complex energy future, and may I say the increasingly expensive energy future. And so that includes energy policies, energy technology, uh, and related solutions and opportunities in our state and in your life to help you reduce your energy costs. And uh, relative to today's program, oh, by the way, while you're reducing your energy costs to reduce your impact on the environment and the climate. So to me, it's a win-win situation to do the right thing with your energy footprint. And so let's talk about that today. So my guest today is Sue Inches, who is a public policy specialist and the author of the 2021 book called Advocating for the Environment. And I think that's highly relevant to the goals of this program. And so we will talk a bit about how to advocate for the environment, I'm sure, but we'll also bring that back and be talking about uh, climate change policy and related energy policy and related energy opportunities. So uh, welcome to the program, Sue. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So uh, big picture here, I mean, you are the author of the book, and so uh, maybe we can start here in a couple of minutes, uh, and you can tell us how you wound up uh, uh, writing that book. Um, but in uh, before that, uh, let's just hang on one second. I'm just clearing something off my screen. Sorry about that, listeners. Um, tell us a little bit about your background and how what brought you to uh, publishing the book, and then we can talk about uh, the process of how you went about doing it. Well, great. So I had have worked in public policy in Maine uh, in Augusta for many years and on a variety of energy issues and fisheries issues and, and all kinds of different things, uh, work that I've loved to do. And then most recently, um, I've been doing some teaching as well, part-time uh, at Colby and Bates Colleges, uh, teaching students how to become effective environmental advocates. And so in doing that, it sort of came to my mind that, you know, I teach, I have maybe 15 students in my class at a time, but if I actually wrote a book, I could reach more people. And well, why would I want to reach more people? Well, I would want to reach more people because we have sort of an environmental crisis in front of us and we need more people to be speaking up about how uh, environmental issues are affecting them. So then course, next thing that happened is we had the pandemic shutdown in, in 2020. And when that happened, uh, temporarily, my teaching and other work was basically uh, shut off. And so I thought, this is a great opportunity. This might be my chance uh, to write a book. So that's what I did. I sat down and I started writing full time from uh, March of 2020 till about January of 2021 and finished the book. And what's great about this is that Actually, there isn't really another book out there that is a citizen's guide uh, to environmental advocacy. And what I do is I make advocacy very accessible to the ordinary person. I think everyone can be an advocate and, you know, here's how you do it. And so I felt like there was a place in the market for uh, a guidebook, uh, both for students and for citizens. So that's kind of how I came to write, write the book. Well, that, um, that makes sense. Uh, so uh, the, the irony is that uh, the pandemic provided the opportunity. Yeah. I've, thought of, I've thought about writing a book, uh, not quite along those lines uh, for years. And I just uh, I just don't know how I'm going to sit down. And, and I got too many ants in my pants to sit down and do it, I'm afraid. But uh, my hat's off to you for doing it. 
Yeah, and I, and I do. I do think this is a, an important book for those who uh, who are interested in in uh, being advocates. And and I will just comment here that, frankly, voting is part of being an advocate. You know, and doing doing your homework, and so that you recognize uh, who's who's out there and what they stand for. And and so uh, I think that's important as well. And and actually, that's that is covered in your book as well, at least briefly. Yeah, well, the whole thing about um, citizen advocacy is that, um, and most people sort of know this, but it's that um, both corporate America and and also, um, you know, sort of uh, right wing think tanks are are producing a lot of legislation uh, that is being introduced in every state and in Congress. And um, the problem with that is that the citizen voices, how, you know, each of us who lives in our community and our neighborhood is being affected. Uh, by environmental policy, that point of view is not being represented. So, you know, if, if, if we don't speak up as citizens, what we get is we get a policy that the corporations like, but it might not be good uh, for your town or your community. So that's why I'm such a strong advocate for citizen voices and for voting, because, you know, we need our voices to be heard. Um, and it's really not happening enough uh, right now. Right. And uh, as, as listeners of this program know, I mean, you, you and I haven't talked about it in particular, but uh, I do teach uh, the environmental courses at uh, Thomas College. And uh, it's, I just think it's really, really helpful to get out there and, uh, and get the students to understand some of this stuff. And it's, it's interesting how many times people will come back and go, I had no idea. You know, I mean, there's, there's plenty of pushback against incentives for and tax credits for renewable energy. Uh, but we've been have we've had for a century those same types of incentives for fossil fuels, and so uh, you know, fair is fair, especially when there's other crises that are that are out there. So, uh, thank you for that perspective, certainly. So, uh, so Sue, maybe to kick off where we go here, there are some important time sensitive energy opportunities uh, that relate to Mainers homes in particular that uh, ultimately will come back and be related to some of the policy things that we probably will talk about here. So uh, let me uh, let me na- bring up a couple of those uh, and see if they can be used to, to jumpstart where we need to go. The first one is not necessarily a policy issue, but it's one that I do think is relevant for people to understand. Uh, and that is that Babcock Ranch, a community near Fort Myers, Florida, was built at, uh, to hurricane-resistant building codes, which is something that Florida has uh, apparently uh, resisted on a statewide basis. And this community is 100% solar-powered. And as a result of Hurricane Ivan, uh, Ian, uh, there were apparently, according to the reports, there was minimal damage to the structures. And uh, you may have actually seen, because I got this one several times in my internet feed, the power didn't even go out. Uh, during Hurricane Ian, unlike the devastation that happened so much of in so much of Florida, so it's an example of uh, the good news of building codes uh, and the advantages of, of uh, renewable power. So I just wanted to mention that to make sure that everybody had was aware of that. The the second thing I want to bring up is uh, again efficiency main is uh, makes typically an annual appearance on this program so that people know what uh, is going on with incentives and and rebates and things like that. Right now, uh, you can get up to $100 reimbursement for anything that you purchase for energy-related weatherization before the end of the year. And uh, $100 is not necessarily a big deal, I recognize, but that $100 can probably save you a couple hundred dollars and make you more comfortable at home. And so it's something uh, 
I'm not sure exactly where what I can do at my house these days, but uh, it's, uh, it's something, it's an opportunity out there. So do pay attention to that. Again, go to efficiencymain.com for uh, the form to get reimbursed for anything up to $100. The other thing that uh, that is new since the last time we were on the air, the PUC has issued a ruling uh, to for uh, lower electric rates for people who have heat pumps or are charging electric vehicles uh, for both central main power and Versant. Uh, and uh, Versant had one uh, themselves. I think maybe they put it on at their own option, but CMP had resisted, but the PUC is apparently making both of them do that. And the big picture here is that there is a, a little bit of a higher monthly connection charge. And the, the NPR story that I read didn't say what that was, but it does, then you do get, once you pay that fee, you do get lower rates um, for, because you're using a heat pump or an electric vehicle. And uh, the modeling by the PUC said that people can save, that homeowners could save 50 to $300 uh, based on the examples that they that they modeled, uh, any does that uh, you want to make any comment on that, Sue? Well, only that um, any investment that people can make in uh, renewable energy um, to remember that it has a return on investment, and that's positive. So you put in your you know your your energy efficiency um, you know insulation or heat pump or whatever, you get a rebate, but the payback is that you will save uh, on your energy costs in the long run. So just to always look at things as a, not just the short-term cost, but what's the investment and what's the, the return that you're going to get back later in energy savings. Yeah, that's uh, that's exactly right. And, and uh, not only energy savings, but you're also more comfortable. You know, mm-hmm. I, did a, I did a net energy uh, retrofit on a building, uh, well, geez, 10 years ago now. Uh, and the first, this is a municipal building over in New Hampshire, uh, and the first comment, I mean, first of all, the the uh, utility was saving a lot of money there. The, this was a, a water and sewer district. So that's the utility I'm referring to. But the staff, their first reaction was, it's so much more comfortable here. We don't have to wear sweaters all winter long. So that's a, it's an important consideration. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, and let me just comment here, too, because, uh, I mean, I've had solar uh, energy people on many times on this program. Uh, and the industry loves to use the term payback. Mm-hmm. And I just want to remind people that if you have, say, a nine-year payback on your solar panels, which is not unreasonable, that uh, lots of people seem to think that they're not going to get any money back or say any savings for nine years. And in reality, if you have a nine-year payback, that means you're making 11% every year right up front. Uh, and a lot of people kind of miss that point. So uh, just uh, just throw that one in. All right. Um, and and, and uh, Sue, I, I know that you have been involved with uh, with Our Power, the uh, the group that is proposing to buy out Central Main Power and Versant and create a public utility. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seth Berry, um, who was the original proponent of that, has been on this program. Do you do you want to make any comment about uh, the uh, uh, that uh, proposal? Well, sure. So <clears throat> right now, um, and many of your listeners have probably seen this, there is a referendum going on. Uh, and the referendum is basically to um, bring our power back to Maine. So right now, uh, CMP is owned by a company called Avangrid out of Connecticut. And Avangrid is owned by Iberdrola, which is based in Spain. Uh, and the thing to know about that is that uh, Iberdrola has many different shareholders, but it includes uh, three different foreign governments. 
uh, Norway, Spain, and Qatar, of all things. And so really what's happening right now, and I would say that Versant Energy is owned by the city of Calgary uh, in Alberta, Canada. So what's happening now is that the profits from our electricity uh, is all going out of state. And that's costing us money. And also that these corporations um, have to borrow at very high rates in order to uh, rebuild the infrastructure, which we need to do with renewable energy in order to keep the infrastructure running. It's costing a lot more than it. Smart energy service is not installed. Go to the light tab in the smart Sorry, go ahead. Excuse me. So anyway, so basically... Under our current system, we're, we, the citizens of Maine, are paying a lot more for electricity than we have to. And so the proposal is to bring the ownership of uh, these two electric electricity companies back to Maine. Now, that doesn't mean that the employees would have to change. In fact, we would imagine that the same people working uh, at CMP and at Versant would continue to have their jobs or they would be offered their jobs. But it's really just the ownership that is changing. And um, by changing the ownership, that means that the profits stay in the state and can circulate in our economy. And it also means that when uh, improvements are made, they can be made at a much lower cost because of the lower interest rates uh, that a consumer-owned utility would pay. So there's a lot in this for Maine people. Um, I should also say there's a lot of misinformation out there as well. So this is not a government takeover, uh, as uh, some people like to say. It's it's not that at all. It's about creating a nonprofit organization with board members that are main citizens who would own the utilities. It has nothing to do with the government. It's just about creating a nonprofit organization uh, that is you know housed and hosted here in Maine that would own our electricity system. Um, and we think that that's better. It's kind of like you know one of the analogies I've heard is like we wouldn't want a foreign company and foreign governments to own our schools. Well, that's kind of what we have with our electricity system. What we really want is local control. So this is all about, um, you know, bringing back local control to our electric utilities. Um, and I should mention that Central Maine Power used to be a Maine-owned corporation uh, back 30 years ago. Um, it used to be, but it isn't anymore. And of course, what we've seen is um, customer service and reliability problems and all of that happening when these companies are owned by foreign governments. And so the, the thought is we could save money and we could get better customer service and better reliability if these companies went back to being locally owned, which they used to be anyway, but we want to bring them back. So that that's basically what the proposal is about. All right. And certainly Central Maine Power and, and uh, Bangor Hydro were both uh, main owned utilities for many years. And um, I mean, one analogy is uh, uh, you mentioned schools. Um, I guess I would come up with, a, with another analogy asking if anybody wants their water utility owned by the country of China. Uh, so uh, which uh, wouldn't make a lot of sense to me. So, so I, I've been a big proponent of energy independence uh, um, separate from this particular proposal, uh, which I have been offering uh, listeners' perspective on through this program, mm -hmm. um, and and uh, actually we exchanged an email uh, setting up this program. That uh, last time we looked, it was five billion dollars of Mainers' money goes out of state. I think it's probably closer to six. I wouldn't be surprised right now, given mm -hmm. the inflation. And I don't know how much of that is for electricity, but I'm sure it's a billion dollars or more. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it's it, it's it's relevant, and people should be thinking about these sort of things as the as they um, 
face the ballot uh, box for this um, this idea coming up, I think, yes, next year. Mm -hmm. uh, there's uh, also for anybody out there involved with a school district, uh, which I guess is uh, lots of the population, if you're a parent even, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency just recently uh, increased the funding for electric school buses to a billion dollars available because of demand. Uh, the article that I read literally from all 50 states for purchasing electric school buses. And, uh, you know, on this program, we've talked about the opportunity for the post office having electric delivery vehicles. What a perfect opportunity when you've got a vehicle that has a known range and is relatively local and isn't putting hundreds of miles on per day to be able to charge those overnight uh, and eliminate the fossil fuels. So if you're uh, working for, for or with a school district, uh, do uh, let uh, people, decision makers know that the funding for electric school buses uh, has been increased by the EPA. And I don't know any more about it than that, but it just seems like a, a good opportunity. Uh, any, uh, any thought there in terms of, uh, Sue, in terms of the issue there? Well, sure, because, um, you know, certainly we are trying to electrify more and more things. Um, but the key, of course, is how do we produce that electricity? Um, do we produce it by burning coal, oil and, 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 and gas? Or do we produce it by solar, wind and uh, other uh, alternative uh, means? So that's the key to it. And, and hopefully um, we'll be investing in renewables uh, at the same time that we're investing in electric uh, post office vehicles and school buses. So that's the key. It's like just because you have an electric car doesn't mean that um, you know you, you've cleaned up the environment, especially if we're getting our power from uh, gas or or coal or oil. So um, I think we're going in the right direction, but we have to do it um, at every level, is what I'm saying. Uh, you know, because the power generation is is you know switching it to electricity is in itself helping the environment so much as changing that generation to alternative uh, energy sources. Right. And uh, a really good point, I think, here uh, related to this topic is, uh, I, you know, I get plenty of feed in my Internet uh, saying that, geez, if you if you exactly what Sue was just saying, if you are driving an electric vehicle, but that electricity is generated by generated by coal, you haven't gained anything. Right. And the thing that uh, the national news media misses when I get that kind of feed is that Maine's electric grid is 80 percent renewable right now. And so the opportunities for us to uh, to do the right thing with electric vehicles and heat pumps and those sorts of things are, are huge. Uh, and hopefully we are moving forward with our climate action plan, uh, depending on what happens in the next election, uh, to make that 80 uh, percent uh, increase uh, relatively soon. Uh, one more thing, one more news item that uh, is uh, circulating in, in my feed. And again, it's probably just me because of things that I click on. But. Uh, the concept of agrivoltaics, uh, and this may uh, well uh, slide us into a discussion about community solar here, Sue, uh, in a moment. But uh, basically, the idea behind agrivoltaics that uh, researchers are working on, including the University of Maine, that's doing some work with uh, with their blueberry research operation, is that uh, for probably largely for hand. Um, uh, harvested crops such as blueberries, which are not necessarily all hand harvested, I realize, but for, for that sort of thing, for low growing crops, or even for sheep, as I've seen it uh, uh, written up, that solar on that land can provide for dual use on land, uh, rather than, unfortunately, and I am going to use the word unfortunately there, uh, solar panels uh, 
industrial scale solar panels being uh, put on quite often agricultural land. I mean, to me, the, the original proposal was that we would develop solar fields on closed landfills, for example, but uh, it's showing up and actually there's there's actually uh, clear cuts going on in order to to establish solar panels, uh, solar uh, farms. And uh, again, I think we need to think hard about uh, how we use our land. So community solar, uh, we did have a brief conversation this on email before before the program. And so I think it's a fair uh, topic to go to. Um, so community solar has been blossoming around the state since the, agri the, since the legislature uh, increased the number of meters that a community solar farm could serve from 10 to 100 back you know, several years ago. Uh, and, and frankly, it's a, it's a solar gold rush uh, that uh, they're just they're building these things. Uh, I have been a proponent that anybody who is in an apartment or whose house is too shaded so they can't put solar on themselves. I've been a proponent of community solar, but frankly, I'm getting a little concerned that community solar, the, the gold rush is causing us to put solar panels on land that just isn't the best possibility. Um, and so I will stop with that one and let you comment. I've got a, a few other things to, to comment there too, but I'll let you let you react to, react to that. Yes, Steve, um, there's a lot to say about community solar and you're absolutely right about the land use issues. Um, and so some, some community solar farms are in uh, gravel pits and places that aren't uh, good agricultural land. But what we want to avoid, of course, is cutting down good forests uh, for solar or taking up really our best soils, uh, you know, with solar farms. So there really is some land use concerns uh, around solar. In fact, we may even see more legislation on that because I think it's a legitimate concern. Um, but the other thing to say about community solar is that you're right, it is a good way for people to participate in solar if they can't, uh, you know, put it on their own home or maybe they rent uh, an apartment or a house where they can't uh, locate solar. And so it's a great way to participate in solar. But there are a couple of things to know about it um, because people need to be smart about how they invest in community solar. So the first thing is, um, the key is who owns the solar farm. So there's really two kinds of solar farms. One are those that are actually owned by community members. Um, and there are a number of those around the states and there are a number of organizations, um, nonprofits in particular that are putting together community solar that are community owned. That is completely different from a um, commercially owned or a corporate owned community solar farm. So just, just to kind of make that differentiation, when you see community solar, it can mean two very different things. It could mean something in your neighborhood owned by your neighbors, or it could mean uh, a corporate uh, community solar facility. Neither one of them is, is, I'm saying is good or bad, but they're just very different. And in the, in the, on the corporate side, um, uh, most of these actually are legitimate. People always ask me that, you know, they get all these flyers in the mail for community solar and sign up now and you'll save money and all of that. And, and they are actually uh, legitimate operations. But the, the thing to know about them is that um, what they actually do is they put, put up their solar uh, facilities and then they sell the uh, solar um, energy credits to uh, other markets. So basically you can, you can sign up and I've done this myself. You can sign up for one of those solar farms, but you're not actually getting the solar credits yourself. They're going to somebody else. So you can't really claim that you yourself have, um, have reduced your emissions in a sense, because 
the credit for those emissions being reduced have gone to a different market. Um, it's still good. It's good because you're participating and helping more solar be built. But you can't actually say, well, I saved emissions from my carbon footprint because somebody else took advantage of that um, somewhere else. So it's just kind of a it's one of those sort of um, sticky things. But but just for people to know that, you know, you really aren't actually saving, but you are helping the industry, which is true and which is good. And you can save a little bit, you know, 10 or 15 percent on your electric bill when you sign up for these. So, um, you know, there's definitely reasons to do it, but it's not quite as good as it might seem. I mean, you're not really reducing your own solar footprint. Um, you are, you know, like I say, participating in, in having more solar get built. And that that is a really good thing. So that's kind of, you know, a little quick mini uh, story about how solar farms work. Um, and then, as I say, there are actual community solar farms that are in owned by people in your community, and those are a little bit different. And those are coming along. There's there's a number, a handful of those in the state, and more are being planned. All right, a couple. Let me. Uh, I have a couple of comments there too. But <coughs> excuse me. Let me just first say that you were listening to Power of the People here on WERU FM eighty nine point nine in Blue Hill, ninety nine point nine in Bangor, and my guest today is Sue Inches who is an environmental policy expert and the author of the book, Advocating for the Environment. And we are talking about, uh, we're working in a little bit of advocacy uh, concept here, but on big picture, we certainly are talking about uh, energy issues. So uh, so your description of the two different uh, types of uh, solar farm is, uh, community solar is is right on the target. I mean, there can be, and, and the unfortunate thing is that the original eight, um, 15 years ago, the original solar farms were owned, as you just said, by individual subscribers um, or individual owners. And now they are, it's, uh, most of the solar farms are subscription farms where you uh, get rights to a portion of it. And so, uh, so right now uh, I am, and there was an article in the paper about uh, my energy issues at my house, my energy um, success, shall we say, I'm, I'm a member of a solar farm. Uh, and so let's just say, I mean, I don't know what I have, but let's just say I have, uh, they've allocated 10% of the solar output to my house. And so I get that credit on my bill. Um, the issue that I struggle with though, uh, is that the solar, most of the solar farms uh, prior to this year were designed to be profitable when electricity was 15 cents a kilowatt. And today they're 22 cents a kilowatt hour. And the, you know, the, the original plan was they were going to give us 10 or 15% back. And now they're still giving us 10 or 15% back off of 22 when they were profitable at 15. And so I do hope the legislature takes some action on, on uh, some regulation on the, uh, the, the community solar farm. I think, quite frankly, they should be selling us a fixed price, not a percentage off. But that's just an opinion. Um, and relative to your comment, which is a really good one that a lot of people miss, that if you are on a community solar farm, I would argue that you are indeed solar powered, but you're not carbon neutral right. uh, because the carbon tax credits are being sold elsewhere uh, as part of the profit for the solar farm. Again, uh, maybe that's uh, just an accounting issue, uh, but uh, something to, to keep in mind. And I do want to go, I've, I've, this has come up uh, from time to time in this, in this program. I did a research project uh, back for a previous employer uh, that was uh, funded by the Maine Technology Institute. Um, and we determined, big picture here, we determined that rooftop solar, if we, we did a survey of the state, and if every house and building in the state of Maine that was suitable for solar 
And we so we looked at the aspect and the slope and the shading. If every house that was suitable for solar had solar on it, we could meet 50% of our grid, 56% of our grid gen, electrical generation just with rooftop solar without any land use issues for putting solar on, um, on agricultural land. And the roofs were already, already doing their environmental damage relative to stormwater runoff and things like that. And that was with 240 watt solar panels. If we scale that up to 400 watt panels today, we could essentially do the entire grid with rooftop solar, no land use issues needed. And so I just hope people can recognize that uh, and we can build that into our climate change action plan, quite frankly, that roof, the potential for rooftop solar. Anyway, a, a minor advertisement for things from my past, but I think, again, I think it's important for people to keep in mind. All right. So, uh, a related topic here, relative, since I just mentioned um, electrical rates. So, uh, and I suspect that you're uh, you're familiar with this from a policy perspective. I've asked a few other people on this program, and quite frankly, haven't gotten a good answer. Right now, our electric rates are pegged to the natural gas price, even though our grid is 80% renewable. What do we need to do? to be able to set our own electric rate price here in Maine? How can we get off the natural gas merry-go-round of inflation? Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, that's a really interesting question. And um, and I don't know all of the variables in that equation, but <clears throat> one of the things that um, people should know is that we're part of a regional grid called ISO New England. And so, um, and there's some really good things about belonging to this regional grid, right? Because it gives us much more capacity. Um, you know, if there's a, a huge storm in Maine and a lot of our power is unavailable, we can get other power from other New England states. Um, it also means that when we invest, we can invest as a larger group uh, and share the costs. So there's some real advantages to being part of a regional grid system. But I think perhaps what you're getting at might be one of the disadvantages, and that is that electricity pricing is tied to the grid that we're part of. And so I think, it, you know, I don't know if if maybe we can somehow, but I'm not sure how Maine would set prices separately from the rest of the grid. Um, you know, and, and I want to go back to um, the state of Texas, and, and we probably all remember uh, a year or two ago when there was an enormous uh, snowstorm in Texas and it, it, and it basically their power was, was gone. And the problem was, is that Texas wasn't connected to any larger grid. They had their own independent self uh, say, you know, state grid. And so they were stuck. They, they basically were, they, they basically were out of power for quite a while because they were not connected to a regional grid. So I would never, I think, recommend that we get away from uh, ISO New England um, but I will say that energy pricing is a really complex issue, like pretty much above my own pay grade, I guess. It's a very complex issue. One of the things that does come up uh, often is can we have demand-based pricing, meaning uh, let's say lower rates at nighttime so you can run your, your dishwasher uh, at a cheaper time. Um, and this has been discussed quite often, but never put in place really. Um, or at least uh, not for uh, regular consumers. I think there are things like this for commercial customers. But anyway, so there are other pricing issues that might be helpful out there. Uh, again, it's very complex and, and it has to do with the regional grid as well as um, our state needs and demands. So 
Um, it's kind of a bigger picture question uh, and not an easy one here. I don't think we could just unilaterally decide these things uh, at the state level from what I know. And as I say, it's, it's, it's pretty complex and I don't know all the variables that would be uh, have to be considered to make these changes. Your analogy or your mention of the Texas situation is uh, certainly a really uh, good warning. There's no question about that. We want to stay connected to the grid. Um, I have had guests on this program who have said that the uh, the contracts and the mechanisms for putting the contracts in place with ISO New England are working against environmental and climate friendly policies. And uh, I, I can't speak to any more than that in particular. Uh, but I guess I do wonder whether we could be somewhat independent on our pricing when we get to close to 100% renewables while still remaining connected to the grid. And so maybe if we need to, to tap from the grid, we would pay a higher price while most of the year paying a lower price would be, I would love to think was somewhat possible. But again, it's above both of our pay grades to, to know how to get there. Well, one thing I can say, though, is that um, the number one priority for ISO New England over you know, ever since it's existed, so for 30, 40 years, has always been reliability. They've always planned for, invested for, done everything to create the most reliable system that they can. Um, so having, uh, uh, and just now, the, we're, they're starting to talk about, and I believe they've um, perhaps adopted a little bit, something about the environment as well as reliability. But for many, many years, that was the number one thing is reliability. Now, you know, um, the climate crisis is sort of becoming more obvious. And so I think environmental concerns will be taken into consideration more and more as we go forward. Um, but, um, you know, I think that's the thing to know is that, you know, they were really put together, organized and built for reliability. And so to bring climate into it is like, an, it's another chapter. And we're just at the beginning stages of that chapter with our regional grid. It'll be interesting to see how that evolves, certainly. And of course, yeah. the irony is that ISO New England is focused on reliability, but CMP is ranked the uh, least reliable uh, utility in the country. So, yeah. um, oops, that uh, didn't work out so well. Mm -hmm. uh, so so here's a, here's a perhaps a provocative thought. I, was, I saw a, uh, a post the other day by the financial group Credit Suisse uh, predicting that renewables were going to be too cheap to meter by as early as 2025. <laughs> uh, good thing you're laughing there. What's your reaction to that thought? Uh, the reason I'm laughing is because the phrase too cheap to meter was first applied to nuclear power plants. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. That's and, what's uh, it proved to be in that case, not true at all, because right. building uh, building and operating nuclear power plants turned out to be more expensive than people thought they would be. Um, and so but but the thing about renewable energy is the cost has come way down from where it was uh, 10, 15 years ago. I mean, it's down to you know 10% of, of what, what it was. So I think we're going in the right direction. There's um, new technologies uh, coming online continuously. And now with the um, R&D going on, with the Inflation Reduction Act and the CHIPS Act and some of the, the federal legislation we've had lately, we're gonna actually see more uh, R&D and that'll help everybody as far as the cost of renewables. So I think we're going in the direction where, uh, and we already are uh, at a place where a lot of renewable energy is actually less expensive to develop and build than fossil fuel infrastructure. So we're already at that point where uh, re renewable energy is a very attractive alternative. 
So that's a really great thing. Unfortunately, our, our grid isn't really ready for it. Uh, and one of the things that's been happening, and this has been happening with solar farms in Maine, is that um, the time period to get new solar farms hooked up to our main electric grid is quite long because many of the substations and the, the infrastructure that's there is not, not ready for renewables. It has to be upgraded. It has to um, have uh, technicians who can do the work to hook up these new renewable facilities. And that's been really slow. Um, there have been stories about solar farms taking as, as long as a year to be hooked up. And that's because our grid isn't really ready. And so we need to make investments um, in, in the grid infrastructure as well as in renewable energy. It's both. We need both things. You mentioned the Inflation Reduction Act. And so I think this is a, a great uh, place to pivot to that. Uh, give me your two cents worth or even your nickels worth uh, on what the Inflation Reduction Act can do. And uh, big picture, and then we'll come back and talk about a few specifics that people need to be aware of their own lives. Yeah, so there's some really interesting things. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act is actually, um, it's the biggest climate bill Congress has ever passed. Um, and it's really... Um, maybe, it's, maybe it's really the first one they've ever passed. Well, yeah, maybe it's the first one they've ever passed. But there's some really good things about it. And one of them is um, how highly leveraged uh, the public spending is. So it's it, the the Inflation Reduction Act is actually much smaller than the original Build Back Better Act that um, the Biden administration proposed. But I think it's going to take us pretty far because base, it's based on incentives. So there's all kinds of incentives for consumers to buy electric vehicles, that kind of thing. There's a lot of incentives for uh, corporate R&D on renewable energy. And there's a lot of incentives in there for manufacturing. So um, that's a really good thing um, because what we've seen happen is, uh, for example, solar panels were invented here, but they're manufactured in China. Well, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act is really a policy to bring back a lot of that manufacturing back here to this country. And the result of that is gonna be a lot of new jobs and a lot of you know, good stimulus for the economy because we're gonna start making these things in the United States. And so I, 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 read, I read that there's actually 20 proposals already on the table to, yeah. uh, to build a solar PV manufacturing plants in the, here in the United States, already yeah. on the table. Yep, that's right. People are jumping at these opportunities. It's really, it's, it's a great, so it's great for manufacturing. It's also great because it's highly leveraged. So something like, you know, for every dollar of, of public money, there's probably going to be an investment of four or five dollars of private money uh, coming in. So it really is an economic stimulus in that way too. And, and I think people should see it that way. This is this is not just a giveaway. This is actually an incentive to get these manufacturing plants up and running. So um, it has a lot, a lot going for it that way. Um, the other thing it does too is that, and this has been less, I think, reported on, but uh, the Supreme Court said uh, in a recent case that the EPA could not regulate greenhouse gases because Congress had not specifically directed them to do that. So even though the Clean Air Act is in place, they said, yeah, but it doesn't, the Supreme Court said, well, yeah, you can't really apply that to greenhouse gases because they weren't specifically mentioned. Of course, the Clean Air Act was written in early 1970s when we weren't really thinking about uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Well, the Inflation Reduction Act specifically now says the EPA can regulate greenhouse gases. So that loophole was also closed, which is really great. 
So I think we're on a, you know, I think with the Inflation Reduction Act, we're really on a positive pathway that uh, we weren't on before. And it's going to really benefit a lot of um, people. I mean, it will lower our energy bills. It's going to create a lot of jobs. Um, it's just it's just really going to help in so many ways. And I think people will start to see that. Um, and it even does lower inflation, although the, you won't really see that for a number of years. You know, people aren't going to see, you know, uh, the price of, a, you know, new television go down tomorrow. But it actually will have the effect uh, over time of reducing uh, the deficit and reducing inflation. So there's many, many good things. Uh, to come come out of that bill, yeah. People, uh, I mean, the the reports from economists that I've seen uh, are pretty much unanimous that it will eventually lower uh, lower inflation. And in the short term, I mean, it is, and this is not the topic of this program, but it is going to lower healthcare costs. Uh, and uh, I think it's the Inflation Reduction Act that actually allowing Medicare for the first time ever to negotiate drug prices. And you know, what took us decades to do that, I'll never understand. Yeah, that's so, right. It does do that. Yeah. So, uh, and there was, there was an article in the Atlantic uh, just this week uh, titled "The Climate Economy Is About to Explode," and they attributed that to the Inflation Reduction Act as, as you just said, Sue, really the first major uh, climate bill to ever be passed by uh, by Congress. Uh, and so, it, again, it's bringing PV manufacturing back. Homeowners do need to be aware. That there's two uh, important uh, points here. I think that homeowners need to be aware of is that. The 30% tax credit for solar PV for rooftop solar has been extended for 10 years. So there's certainty there that has not existed ever. Uh, and that tax credit, by the way, uh, is retroactive to this year. So if by some chance you install solar panels expecting it a 20, to get a 26% tax credit this year, it's going to be 30%. So, uh, so you know, be aware of that, and again, you know, long term, be planning for that 10, 10 year uh, tax credit. And then the other thing is, uh, there are tax credits there for electric vehicles and for heat pumps, and probably more than just that. Those don't kick in until two thousand and twenty three, and so people need to be aware of that. Um, and quite frankly, I need to get Efficiency Maine back uh, on the program since that that act was uh, was passed, and talk about where the incentives, the rebates for heat pumps are going in the state of Maine relative to that tax credit. So again, uh, do solar now if you are if you can actually find somebody who's going to be willing to install it, which you probably can't, uh, but hang off, hang on uh, for heat pumps uh, until 2023 would be, would be my advice. Actually, what I was going to say is uh, get in line now because, um, you know, the real bottleneck now is having enough uh, technicians to come and install uh, heat pumps, solar, all of that. Um, you know, there's gonna, there's a lot of hiring going on. There'll be more hiring going on, but basically, you know, you're gonna be waiting months uh, to get these things because um, the companies that offer them are just so backed up with work. It's, it's incredible. So I would say it's not too early to get in line, even for the heat pumps, even though the, the uh, credits don't kick in for a little while. By the time you reach the top of the line, uh, it should be 2023, and you'll be in the right place. Yeah, so, that's, that's exactly right. It will definitely be 2023. Yeah. Uh, and, and the other thing to, to think about, if you're uh, if you're at all handy with these things or want to climb on roofs, uh, there are no doubt going to be lots of jobs in the solar industry uh, out there, uh, which, which leads me to point out that uh, that lots of coal miners have been uh, in the, down in the Appalachians have been uh, transferring into the uh, solar installation sector uh, and that the Kentucky the Kentucky uh, State Coal Mine Museum 
recently installed solar panels on their roof because they couldn't afford the price of electricity generated by coal. How's, how's that for ironic? That's really interesting. And I'll just yeah. mention one other thing that's just kind of a sign of the times. And that is, um, I was up talking to Unity College recently, and they're launching a two-year training program uh, in um, basically the trades for uh, renewable energy. Um, you know, they see such a demand for uh, trained people that they're offering a new program um, that, and I think it, it may be hybrid. I, I think it may be somewhat online uh, uh, and somewhat in person, but I mean, they're, you know, the, the educational institutions uh, like Unity are gearing up to try to train the employees that we're going to need. So this is all really good. I mean, this is opportunities uh, for people to get involved and, and get uh, into a new career that's going to be uh, pretty hot for a while. Yeah, I'd be interested to know how Unity is doing that because, uh, I mean, when I was over there recently, they only had 50 students on campus and everybody else was online. So I don't know how you train people to to do these things online, but the concept is certainly good. I will mention, too, that uh, Kennebec Valley Community College has an energy renewable energy program where they talk about solar and wind and things like that. Uh, and probably other community colleges uh, do, too. It's just but that, that is the one most local, local to me. Yeah, well, I'll just say quickly that Unity's uh, has opened a new campus uh, at Pineland in New Gloucester. Um, so that's where the center is going to be. They still have their campus in Unity, Maine, but they have another campus uh, for the uh, training that I just uh, spoke of that is is just recently been opened. Yeah, so it's all brand new. Yeah. Yeah, good information. I, I wasn't aware of that specifically. Yeah. So uh, there were there are a couple of other oh, before we're down to a, a little over 10 minutes. And so let me just uh, again say that you're listening to Power for the People here on WERU-FM. Uh, and my guest today is Sue Inches, an environmental policy expert uh, and author of the book, uh, the 2021 book, Advocating for the Environment. Uh, so we, we've got a, a little over 10 minutes. And, and the, the things on my list would be to talk about uh, the CHIPS Act, for example, and uh, some other re related legislation. Uh, but do you want to just uh, take a few minutes to talk about uh, your perspective on, on how the average citizen could better advocate for the environment, the, the title of your book? Oh, great question. Yeah. So um, as I said earlier, uh, citizens need to speak up uh, because if they don't, what we get is sort of corporate public policy, which is not really what most of us want. And it turns out that um, advocacy is at its base much simpler than people think. In fact, I think the word advocacy can be sort of intimidating. Uh, people think that you sort of need to be an expert, or uh, but the fact is you really don't. I mean, all you need to do is to know what you care about and be able to tell that story. Um, and one of the really great things uh, in Maine is we have a big legislature. There, there's, you know, um, there's a, a representative right near you. Uh, and if you can get to know that person uh, and talk to them about what you care about, uh, that's all you have to really do. Um, just talk about what you care about and why. And so um, that's really, I mean, the basic things about advocacy, it's about building relationships with the decision makers. Um, it's really about that. They're human beings. They want to hear from you. They want to know how you're affected by public policy. And one of the issues right now, this is not uh, an energy issue, but one of the issues right now where you can see that's the case is the PFAS chemicals, which um, we're doing a lot of testing uh, in different communities right now. A lot of farms have found this toxic chemical to be on their fields. Um, and the, we're, we're making great headway because people in Maine have told their legislator their story. 
you know, I had a farm, I was farming it, I put uh, sludge on my fields, it turns out there were there were poisonous content uh, pounds in that sludge, and now I can't farm anymore. That's a really important story uh, for a decision maker to hear. And they have heard that. And Maine is basically in the lead on uh, trying to figure out how we handle these chemicals. So the, the same thing is true. You know, if you care about uh, high energy prices, if you care about renewable energy, if you care about clean air um, and you live near the South Portland tank farm, for example, um, go tell your legislator about it. They need to hear from you. Um, so that's really what it's all about. And, and my book just talks about how you can communicate with the decision makers effectively and, and how you can reach out. Uh, and one of the things I often will ask audiences when I speak is I'll say, how many calls does it take to move a legislator on an issue here in Maine? And people are often surprised by the answer. The answer is five calls. That's all it takes to move a legislator on an issue. So they're waiting to hear from you and they have uh, phone numbers, email addresses, uh, and you can get to know them and tell your story. And that's how you participate in government. And that's how you participate in making the issues uh, speak to you. So that's that's really what I like to talk about uh, with this book. And it's like I say, it's a citizen guidebook that makes it pretty easy and simple. This is how uh, you can be an advocate because everyone can be an advocate. And I hope people will. Right. And a big part of it is, is educating yourself in terms of who's voting for for what. Uh, in in uh, my environmental courses, I start several of them uh, with uh, asking students to go into the League of Conservation Voters or some other type of, of uh, scorecard like that to see how their local legislator voted. And it's interesting how, how often students will come back and go, well, wait a minute, this guy or this person voted in this way? That doesn't make any sense to me at all. Uh, and in fact, just yesterday in the mail, I got a, a card from a prospective legislator who uh, touted the fact that he had voted against research on PFAS and that he had voted against, uh, I think was, he had an acronym in there, unreasonable regulations to protect drinking water. And I'm going, what? I mean, is, is that something that people want to vote for? I just, I don't understand that sort of thing. So, uh, so again, League of Conservation Voters and a number of other uh, uh, resources are out there online for you to educate yourself on your own legislature and make a decision on, on what you're going to vote for. So uh, great, uh, great comments there. And, and to me, I think it, is, it does matter that people write letters to the editor, that you take the time to sit down and write the letter to the editor. But if you do, send it to your legislator. Don't just do one thing with it. Uh, get, get more bang for the buck by sending it somewhere else. That's so, right. Yep. And legislators' addresses are all published online. You can go to the Maine State Legislature and find everybody's address and phone number. So um, I have to say that in Maine, our decision makers are so uh, accessible. You know, we're really lucky in that way. All you have to do is look it up. You can find out who is your representative, where they live, and um, and what is their phone number, and what is their email address. So it's it's right there. It's easy to do. Right. So we've, we're down to about five minutes. Uh, let's. Uh, so there are a couple of other things here in terms of the CHIPS Act. Maybe there's something else we haven't mentioned on the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm not sure. Uh, there's, uh, I guess there was the Infra Infrastructure and Jobs Act that's related and also an act on refrigerants, which is not an energy issue per se, but uh, it is something that people might keep in mind before you go out and buy uh, an, a new refrigerator, for example. Um, where do you, where might you want to go on that, Sue? 
Oh, well, I'm so glad you brought up the refrigerants because um, this this is called the Kigali uh, Amendment, and it's gotten zero uh, media attention, but it's really, really big uh, because what it does is it bans uh, some chemicals called HFCs, which are in every air conditioner, in your car, in your home, in your you know, school or office building, um, these, these toxic refrigerants are everywhere. And it turns out that they are between a thousand and 9,000 times more toxic than carbon dioxide. I mean, they're very potent greenhouse gases. And so the really good news is that um, 170 countries got together and signed an agreement. It's a treaty. It's a global treaty to ban them. And what we've been waiting for, for about five years, is for Congress to ratify this treaty. And so- Is that, the Montreal, is that the Montreal Protocol or something? Yeah, it's, called it that? is part of the Montreal Protocol. Okay. That's right. It's called the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol. And so about three weeks ago, um, maybe four now, I think it was the last week of September, Congress ratified uh, the Kigali Amendment saying, we in this country are going to ban these HFC chemicals. and um, it's just astounding because the media didn't really report it, but this is huge. Um, and the really good thing about it is there actually are alternative refrigerants that are non-toxic that can be used right away and they don't cost more. So there's really industry actually went along with this pretty much. There were a few opponents, but it was a bipartisan vote. We had uh, many Republicans. I think it was 48 to 21 uh, Democrats and Republicans. So bipartisan vote because there's no reason to keep using these toxics when um, non-toxic alternatives are actually available. And so the other thing that's really cool about it, um, and this is true for the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, is that by taking these measures, the United States has suddenly taken the lead on climate issues. This sends a huge message to the rest of the world. Um, the rest of the world has kind of been waiting for us to take the lead. And now that we have, um, they will start following through on their obligations. And so, and this is very true of the Kigali Act um, and the Montreal Protocol is that all the other countries, there's a plan in there to phase out these um, toxic refrigerants over time until they're all gone by 2028. And so now that the US Congress has taken action, the plan will start to unfold. The rest of the uh, countries will start to eliminate them there. So um, it's very much like what we did to get rid of um, the chemicals that were harming the ozone layer back in the 1990s. Maybe some of your listeners will remember this. So we, we banned the um, spray cans and spray bottles that were causing uh, the ozone layer to have a hole in it. Um, and it was the Montreal Protocol that did that. And so the Kigali Amendment is, a, is an amendment tacked onto that same treaty to get rid of this next round of uh, toxic chemicals. And so I've kind of been thinking that because that other uh, movement was so successful, maybe that's why this one is succeeding too. It's like people are saying, well, we did that before, now we can do this again. And um, if we eliminated all of the HFCs, um, that would make the uh, Earth's temperature go down by half a degree. So half a degree centigrade. So it's a really big thing. Right. And and uh, and there has, uh, there, let me just make sure that uh, Everybody's clear on this. So uh, in the climate modeling world, carbon dioxide is assigned a value of one for global warming potential. Uh, and uh, water vapor has a, has a value of one. Uh, methane has a value of 82. 
relative to it, it, the potential to warm the, the planet. And as you just said, HFCs have global warming potentials in the thousands. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, you can, you can reduce CO2 uh, substantially in your own life, but if you're doing a little leaking of HFCs, you're going to offset uh, that advantage. So there's, uh, there's the advantage there. And I think some of those HFCs are also related to the ozone hole, at least a little bit. Uh, and the other thing that's going on is there has been some backsliding in the concentration of these things in the atmosphere that nobody can figure out where they're coming from. And I think it's because yeah. there was no leadership in the world. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, your comment on U.S. leadership on protecting the environment is a big deal. And I'm going to spin that right back around on advocacy for the environment, because there are politicians out there who say we don't we shouldn't be leaders in the environmental field, it's unfair to us to, to lead. Uh, and frankly, uh, you need to make a decision whether you uh, want to vote for somebody like that, uh, again, with no names being being offered or no parties being offered there. So we're, we're down to about a minute here. You wanna just chip in, pun intended, on the CHIPS Act real quick in, in one minute? Sure, yeah. So the CHIPS Act is basically was created to manufacture uh, semiconductors uh, in this country. Uh, for the most part, because uh, they're being manufactured now in, in Taiwan, and uh, there's some security issues around that. Um, so we want to get some of that manufacturing back here. ChipsX does that. It also invests in R&D uh, for energy as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful bill. Um, I do want to mention before we go, um, I hope this is okay to pitch this, but my book, uh, Advocating for the Environment, is available online and in bookstores everywhere. So if you're interested in um, how to become a more effective advocate, uh, I'd say go get it. It's, it's easy to read. It's um, all about Maine. It, all the examples are in Augusta. Uh, so it's about us and how we do uh, what we do here in, in Maine, and it's, it's easy, easy to find. So I just want to mention that. And you are indeed a, a, a Maine native. I don't know if you're a Maine native, but you're, you live in Maine and you've worked in Maine for your, your whole career. And so, uh, you know, this is not uh, somebody from outside coming in to uh, pitch environmental uh, messages that, uh, that aren't uh, consistent with the state of Maine. So we are out of time. Uh, and so I'll just close by saying you've been listening to Power for the People here on WERU-FM 89.9 in Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor with guest Sue Inches, again, the author of the books that she just mentioned, Advocating for the Environment. Power for the People airs the fourth Wednesday in the public affairs time slot at 4 p.m. So join us next month to learn more about energy topics, policies, technologies, opportunities, solutions uh, for you and your life. I'm Steve Kyle, and we'll see you next month. Thanks a lot, Sue. All right, thanks for having me.